A year ago, my favorite Sunday occurred at Aletheia Church. It was a day full of joy, gratitude, and sadness. At the end of the service that day, the elders and pastors called up onto the stage all those who were leaving Gainesville temporarily and permanently. We called them up so that we could send them out into the world beyond Aletheia. On that day, there were those who would graduate with a bachelor's degree in a matter of days. There were doctors finishing up their fellowship and residency. There were men and women who were soon to be given the honor of Ph.D., having just defended their research and presented their papers. We had students going on summer mission trips to proclaim the gospel around the world. We had students going to work at camps, to work at Christian summer camps. We had students who were getting ready to return home for the summer. In all, just over 70 souls who longed to live for the cause of Christ were prayed for and launched out into the world beyond Aletheia, having been commissioned and appointed by us to go and make disciples of all nations. What a spectacular and glorious day that was. Today, by virtue of technology, that same calling and sending out will take place. If you would, go ahead and do me a favor and open up God's Word to Acts chapter 13. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been in the book of Acts, but you might be saying to yourself, we've already covered Acts 13 and half of 14, and you would be correct. So we will get to Acts 14, 19 through 28, but I first off want to set 19 through 28 into the larger context, which we haven't covered yet here in our teaching series, Go and Tell. Acts 13 and 14 are known as what is Paul's first missionary journey. The Apostle Paul, after having been converted to Christ in about 46 AD, launches out on a journey with Barnabas that takes about two to three years. If you look at the map on the screen, you will see that his journey begins in Antioch in Syria, which is just north of Israel. From there, they set sail to the island of Cyprus. They land in the coast uh, of Turkey. And they then move up into Antioch, which, by the way, there are 16 different Antiochs in this region. So anytime you're reading your scripture and you see Antioch, don't assume it's the same one because there are 16 different Antiochs inside this region of Turkey and Syria. And from there, they even go more into the central part of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so this is where all the action is going to take place today in these two chapters. Notice with me that when Paul set out on this journey, there is a very strategic pattern that he and Barnabas set forth, one that they put in place as they go into the world to reach the world for Christ. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 13. So 
being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Go down also to verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, and then he launches into a gospel proclamation. But what I want to point out to you is that the strategic place that Saul and or Paul and Barnabas went were to a place where people would give them an ear. They went to where they knew the people, they knew what the people thought, they knew what the people believed, and they there proclaimed the gospel message to them. These people were willing to give them an ear. And so you as the church, we as the church, can take their strategy and implement it into our daily lives. Think for a moment where it is you go in your daily life. It may be to work. It may right now be work on a Zoom call. It may be with your family. It may be with your friends. But there are people in your life right now whom you have their ear, whom you converse with on a regular basis. These are the people that God has placed you around that would give you the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So we encourage you that wherever you are at now and wherever you are going this summer, temporarily or permanently, you make it an intentional, strategic, missionary endeavor in your life to see those around you to whom God has given you their ears so that you can proclaim the gospel. And it is this very gospel message that they proclaimed over and over and over. Look in verse 26 of chapter 13. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Church, we have the message of salvation. But we are not the only ones with a message of salvation. For right now, there are other messages of salvation being promoted in the world. And these, this message of salvation, these messages of salvation are against the competing message of fear. I want to jump outside of the book of Acts for a moment into our present day context to draw a parallel what is taking place, what was taking place in Paul's day and is taking place in our day. No matter the age of history, no matter your stage in life, you will hear for the rest of your life the two competing messages, two competing themes of fear and salvation. Right now, around the world, 
the common thing that all of our ears are attuned to is this message about COVID-19. There is a message of fear of the virus. And some promote a contrasting message of salvation, saying that science and a vaccine are our hope. Herd immunity is our hope, they tell us. There are those who are promoting a message of a a fear of a collapsed economy. And our salvation is opening it back up and getting back to work. Though these messages are prevalent, it's not as if these messages haven't always existed and aren't always promoted into our lives. Just a few years ago, there was a fear of a housing market collapse. The salvation was an economic stimulus. Eighty years ago, there was fear of Hitler and Germany and the Axis. The salvation was buying war bonds so that we could send over soldiers to stop their forces. A few centuries before that, there was fear of the crown. And what we needed for salvation was to start a new nation in this land. At some point in your life, someone has promoted to you fear of not having a good life. And because you want to have a good life and you feared not having a good life, you made it resolute that you would go and get a college degree because you were told it would be your salvation. Surely you've heard messages promoting fear about getting sick. And you were told if you will just take this pill or this supplement, it will save you. Some of you, when you get married and you start to have children, you will start to hear the message about a fear of dying young and salvation will be found in term life insurance. Once you do have children, they will talk to you about the fear of your child being kidnapped and they will tell you that salvation will be a watch or a phone that tracks their every move. As I have said, no matter your age, no matter the stage of human history, these two themes will dominate everything that you hear in this life. But my question for you as the church is, which one will you preach? What message are you preaching right now? As you have conversations with those to whom have given you their ear, are you preaching the message of fear and worry and anxiety or stress? And maybe you say, no, Daniel, I'm not preaching that message. What I'm preaching is a message of salvation. Well, what salvation is it? Is it a temporary salvation or is it the great, glorious, grand, majestic salvation of Jesus Christ? Are you preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom? Look with me with at Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 33a, to see the message that Paul was preaching to those whom he had their ear. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you see that Paul proclaimed the gospel of salvation? Paul proclaimed the Easter theme that Kevin spoke of last week, that there is this one, there has been this plan from before time began for the Son of God to appear in the flesh to make right what we made wrong, where we stood condemned, guilty as sinners before a holy God because each of us had turned his own way. God in our place came. Jesus lived the life that we should have did live the life that we should have lived without sin. And He willingly, graciously, and mercifully, and joyfully went to the cross on our behalf so that we, rebels, could be reconciled to God. He paid our penalty. And now we have been justified. We have been made favorable in God's eyes. We have been given the gift of faith. God has done amazing things for us, and this offer of salvation is to all those who would believe. This is the great and glorious hope that the world needs. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This world is not our home. One day. God will set all things right. He will make all things new. We will have trial and tribulation in this world. And that is why we look to a greater hope in Jesus Christ, our God and our King. And as great and as wonderful as this message is, the reactions from people are not always as we had hoped. And in the same way that there are two messages that will be constantly promoted in our lives, there will always be on the spectrum at the far ends two grand reactions. Reactions that we will see even among those whom they lend us their ear to be able to speak life and truth into them. Look with me at Acts chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And on down in verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we can see, and we see this theme throughout Scripture, that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, there will be two reactions, reviling and rejoicing. 
Church, the good news for us is that the outcome of the message is not up to us. Because the scripture tells us that it is not our job to talk someone into following Jesus, for we do not have that power. Our calling is to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel message to each and every person. We gospel the lost person. We even gospel the saved person because we needed to be reminded of it. And we for sure should gospel ourselves because we all need the message of salvation continually. But in these places, there will be times when people will revile you and persecute you and say all kind of bad things about you because you believe in the gospel and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for them, love them, but do not fear them. But also know there will be those who rejoice. And the reason you just need to be faithful because eventually as you continue to proclaim the gospel, as many who are appointed to eternal life will believe in the gospel. And you will see great and wonderful rejoicing take place in their life. And what a truly glorious experience it is. You're going to see as we move through into chapter 14, these reactions to the proclamation of the gospel only intensify. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 3a. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. The reviling has picked up. The reviling is about to intensify. But before it reaches peak fervor, we have this crazy intense scene that Kevin covered last week in verses 8-18. through 18, That when the power of God was released in the midst of these pagan people, they thought that Saul and Barnabas were actually gods. And they tried to worship them and offer sacrifices to them. That must have been a crazy setting and a crazy scene. And as much as they didn't want that to happen, I'm sure they preferred it to what happens next. In verses 19 through 21, we read this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Let me ask you this question. What in the world could have possibly motivated Paul? After having been stoned and left for dead, to return back 
to the very same city the next day. I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've read this passage numerous times in the 20 years that I've been a believer. And like me, you've probably just read through, you, you probably just glossed over because the cities come up again, you didn't really know where to place them, and you're just kind of going through the narrative of the story. But as I read it and I, and I dug into this passage, I was just arrested by the fact that Paul had been stoned. Now, I've never witnessed a stoning personally and never want to witness a stoning personally, but having studied a little bit of the historical context of this, basically it's you stand there, people get a bunch of big rocks, and they throw them at your head till you're dead. And they threw these stones at him in such a way that the people who were proficient in this exercise actually thought they were dead. So let's just take for a moment, let's pretend this happened to us. Let's pretend it happened to you. Um, what is the thing that you would do the very next day? I know what I would do. I would be having a serious conversation with Jesus saying, hey, I am taking some time off. This has gotten really intense. This is really hard. This is really painful. People are trying to take my life and throw rocks at my head, and I need a break. So for the next six months, I'm going to heal up, and I'm going to binge every show on Netflix that I've missed out on uh, that all my friends are watching right now, or Hulu, or Quibi, or whatever show, whatever way you're getting your shows these days. I would have taken some serious time off, and I might have taken some permanent time off. Let's be honest, because getting stoned is not my idea of a good time. But this guy, I mean, this guy gets up, and he goes back the very next day, and he preaches the gospel to them again. The very same thing that almost got him killed the day before, he goes and repeats the very same act. And even crazier, in my opinion, is that look where he goes after he preaches the next day. He goes back to Lystra and to Iconium. Where had the people just come from who had stoned him. They hunted him down from Antioch and Iconium, and he goes to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. And I just am forced to ask myself the question and to ask you the question, what could have possibly motivated them? And I'll tell you what it was. Fear and salvation. Those two themes, those two messages that we hear all the time on a loop over and over and over, just packaged in a million different ways, that is exactly what motivated the Apostle Paul to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who had just tried to kill him. If you remember from my previous sermon three weeks ago, I told you a story about Jesus taking the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee. The story takes place in Mark chapter 4. Jesus takes these boys out, boys who had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. At least four of them were fishermen who spent most of their life on that sea. Surely they had seen some good squalls and storms come up. 
But this one was so great and so mighty that they were actually afraid for their life. They're screaming and yelling. And the whole time as they think they're about to die, Jesus is asleep on the boat. They wake him up. Jesus gets up. He wipes the sleep from his eyes and he looks at the storm and he says, Peace, be still. And that that very same creation that sprang to life and obeyed when he spoke it into existence immediately and quickly obeys just the same and comes completely still. And it says the disciples look at him. Having transferred their fear from the storm now to the person of Jesus and said, Who is this that the winds and the waves obey Him? Paul, having had a Damascus Road experience, had transferred his sphere in life, which was keeping all the righteous requirements of the law and the extra measures of the Pharisees He had transferred fear from living self-righteously, justifying himself before God to fear of Christ, who was dead, who was buried, and who was resurrected back to life and appeared to Saul on the road of Damascus. So see, it, it is not that we want to get rid of all fear and only think about salvation. No, what we have to do as the church, if we are going to be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to allow our fear of Christ, our reverence and our awe and our respect of Him, to be greater than our fear of man, than our fear of virus, our, our fear of getting shamed, our, our fear of getting told no. In whatever way that when you think about proclaiming the gospel to someone, that when you get ready and your mouth gets dry and you get nervous, whatever that fear is that's being spoken into your life, either by yourself or by Satan and his servants, you need to, not, you need to now get the fear of Christ as something greater than that fear. Because it is that fear of the glory of Jesus Christ that motivated Paul and allowed Paul and urged Paul and persuaded Paul that he, it was worth it no matter what he faced in this life to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Fear and salvation is what motivated Paul. Fear of Christ and the glorious good news of the salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul returned to the places where the people had just tried to take his life. But let me also say, state for you, it's not the only reason he returned. For look what the Scripture says in verses 21 and 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, 
They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The second reason that Paul returned to those places was his incredible love for the church and his desire to strengthen them, to encourage them, and to appoint them. Church, I wish I could be with you on this day. I wish that we could all be gathered together. I wish that I could see each and every one of your beautiful faces. Me, a non-hugger, has a great desire to bear hug every single one of you this morning. Know that that desire is not only in my heart, but it is in the desire of every elder, every pastor, every gospel community leader. Every person in this church desires to be together as the body of Christ as it's formed at Aletheia Church. And soon, that day will return and that day will come and what a glorious and joyful occasion it will be. But until then, by virtue of all this technology, let me do my best to strengthen you, encourage you, and appoint you this morning. I pray that the message that I have preached to you has given you strength. I pray that it has renewed your faith in the gospel. I pray hearing the gospel again over and over and over has given you a strength to go out into the world. I pray that hearing the testimony of Paul, that no matter how great the trials and tribulations, he still got up to proclaim the gospel. I pray that strengthens your faith. I pray it encourages you to go out into the world boldly and to and to live for the cause of Christ. For you will do many things in this life throughout your days, but there will be none more glorious and more important than you infusing the gospel message with your words and with your actions to every soul that you come in contact with. And I want you to know that whether you are expecting it or not, and whether you're leaving Gainesville temporary or permanently, this morning you are all appointed. Whether you want to recognize an appointing by me and the church this morning, I do pray that you would strongly recognize in this time of the coronavirus and even before that you were appointed by someone with much greater authority and love for you than I could ever imagine. For 2,000 years ago, after his resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples. And on that day, in meeting with the disciples, the Scriptures tell us that the disciples fell down and they worshipped Him. 
but some still struggled with doubt. And to strengthen them, to encourage them, and to appoint them, Jesus leaves them with these words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, may we take this appointment to do the work of proclaiming the gospel, of making disciples of all nations, of baptizing them, of teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded us. May we take this appointing seriously. Jesus, you say that all authority has been given to you. May we recognize and bow down before that authority. May our fear of Christ so overwhelm our souls that we are moved to proclaim the gospel of salvation no matter the cost to us personally. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would put into the heart of every believer and even non-believer watching this today, that you would put into their heart an incredible desire to preach the message of salvation to a world so desperately for the good news of Jesus. And may we go knowing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. For the Scriptures declare that He sits on His throne ruling the heavens. May we live in awe and wonder of that fact and go forth from here into the world for as many days and as many breaths as You will give us with the fear of Christ in our heart and the proclamation of the gospel in our mouths. May we live for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.